Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction. I'm Lenny Picker of Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Dominic Smith, whose novel, The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos, is being published by Sarah Crichton Books, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good morning, Dominic. Good morning, Lenny. Could you start us off with an excerpt from your book? Sure, I'd love to. So I'm going to read the opening description of the painting that's at the center of the book. It's called At the Edge of a Wood, painted in 1636. A winter scene at twilight. The girl stands in the foreground against a silver birch, a pale hand pressed to its bark, staring out at the skaters on the frozen river. There are half a dozen of them bundled against the cold, flecks of brown and yellow cloth floating above the ice. A brindled dog trots beside a boy as he arcs into a wide turn. One mitten in the air, he's beckoning to the girl, to us. Up along the riverbank, a village is drowsy with smoke and firelight, flush against the bell of the pewter sky. A single cataract of daylight at the horizon, a meadow dazzled beneath a rent in the clouds, then the revelation of her bare feet in the snow. A raven, quilled in violet and faintly iridescent, caws from a branch beside her. In one hand, she holds a frayed black ribbon twined between slender fingers, and the hem of her dress, visible beneath a long gray shawl, is torn. The girl's face is mostly in profile, her hair dark, loose, and tangled about her shoulders. Her eyes are fixed on some distant point, but is it dread or the strange halo of winter twilight that pins her in place? She seems unable or unwilling to reach the frozen riverbank. Her footprints lead back through the snow toward the wood beyond the frame. Somehow, she's walked into this scene from outside the painting, trudged onto the canvas from our world, not hers. Thank you, Dominic. Where did the powerful image in the painting that you've just described come from of a lonely girl watching others at play with no indication that she will or even wants to join in the fun? Mm. So really this idea has been brewing for a while. About 15 years ago, I lived in Amsterdam and got very interested in Baroque women painters. And one of the painters of that period is a woman named Judith Leister, who was really lost for about 200 years in the art historical record. There are no known landscapes that have been attributed to a woman uh, of that period. And part of the novel's conceit is to uh, reimagine the circumstances under which a woman painter of the 17th century in Holland might find herself uh, painting such an outdoor scene. Uh, it was also, to some extent, inspired by the wintry landscapes of Avercamp uh, from that same period, but of, you know, from a man's uh, perspective. And without giving too much away about the, the plot itself, could you talk a little bit more about the significance of the painting to the storyline? Yeah, absolutely. So the so really the the landscape is a kind of unifying object in the novel. So we track the way it impacts three different lives over three different centuries. So we follow the life of Sarah DeVos, the painter. She's the first woman to be admitted to a guild of St. Luke in the 17th century in Holland. Uh, we follow a wealthy Manhattan lawyer who inherits the painting in 1950s New York. And finally, we follow an art historian, an Australian woman named Ellie Shipley, who really builds her career to some extent on the back of this painting. But when she was a struggling graduate student, she was actually paid to make a copy of this uh, rare but iconic painting. And so many years later, when she's curating an art exhibition on Dutch women of the Golden Age, both her copy 
and the original landscape show up for the same exhibition. And obviously, this threatens to kind of unravel her professional and, and personal life. So the painting is, in some ways, the narrative glue in this book. Okay. And when you're giving, at the beginning, the historical background to the novel, you talk about the guild that existed in Holland at the time, which controlled all aspects of professional artistic life, including who could sign and date paintings. Mm -hmm. Now, did the guild's tight control over the art world facilitate the golden age of Dutch art, or did it become a golden age in spite of the guild? No, that's a great question. Um, actually, I think of the guild in some ways as the ultimate kind of bi-local program, right? It just happened to be in the 17th century. So on the one level, they did a lot for professional artists in the 17th century. You know, there were some 50,000 professional painters across the 17th century in Holland, and certainly the guild helped them get better prices for their art, have more uh, standing in the community. But they were also quite paternalistic, and uh, there were all kinds of restrictions. Uh, they collected fees and fines and taxes on behalf of the city where they were located. So there was this kind of, uh, I would say, double-edged sword. On the one hand, they helped artists, but they also sometimes uh, hindered their progress and some of their personal freedoms. So I'm going to betray my uh, limitless ignorance of the art world at the time. In terms of the way that guild operated, was that something unique in Europe at the time, or were there other countries that had something similar? Yeah, very similar. So in Italy at the same time period, it was the Academy, which really fulfilled the same function as the guild. In you know Belgium and kind of the, the lowlands area, there were other guilds. Uh, and really, they had, they had a lot in common, and they all drew inspiration uh, from St. Louis. Luke as a kind of, uh, you know, the patron saint of um, kind of early artistic forms. Uh, so they were, they were very similar. But what was interesting in Amsterdam and in Holland is that the place of women within those guilds, there were about, about 25 women admitted to a guild of St. Luke. We only have a small handful of paintings for a few of them, but they actually enjoyed uh, quite a bit of standing in the St. Luke's uh, guild community. So that's, that's also an interesting outlier compared to some of the other guilds and academies across Europe at the time. In terms of the time periods that the other characters inhabit, so we're talking about the late 1950s and then the most recent period is, is the year 2000, you clearly had some flexibility that you didn't have with you know, the golden age of Dutch art. So could you talk a little bit about why you chose those particular time periods sure. for later sections of the novel? So one of the things I wanted to explore, so for the art historian character, Ellie Shipley, as an Australian art historian, I wanted to track her progress as a thinker and an artist and a professional across time. And I think in 1950s Australia, and certainly uh, 1950s within, you know, feminism to some extent, there was this sense uh, in Australian culture that, uh, you know, an, an intellectual or an artist had to leave Australia in order to get fully recognized and fully discovered. That narrative is completely different by the year 2000. So one of the things that the novel charts is Ellie's experiences with the chauvinism, if you will, of the art world. So the way she confronts it in 1950s uh, has some distant echoes to what Sarah DeVos confronted in the 17th century. But by the year 2000, that's really kind of radically changed. She's coming into her own uh, as a kind of uh, well-respected art historian. But at the same time, she has this kind of troubling uh, luggage, if you will, from that, from that earlier period. So I was interested in exploring that. 
Okay. I'm going to sort of jump a little bit since you referred to her being Australian. Yep. You were born in Australia. And in the book, uh, one of the characters talks about Australians and says that they don't trust their own talents. I think the quote is something along the lines of anything foreign or exotic is automatically better and more refined. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And growing up, was that a sense that you yourself had? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it's well known within Australian history and culture, this idea of the cultural cringe, right? Which is this idea that somehow because Australia started off as, you know, a, a kind of convict colony, that it's got this inferiority complex. I think that Australians today don't really see that in a different context. But in the 1950s, uh, it was common in Australia, for example, one of the things in the book is that, you know, there might be uh, a music program on the radio where someone would play a piece of classical music by a European composer. Then they would play a piece by an Australian composer, but they wouldn't tell the listeners which was which. And they would ask them to call in and guess. And almost always they would, you know, claim that the superior piece was by the European and the inferior piece uh, was by the Australian. And so I think this is a really tangled, complex issue within Australian history. And it's something that I wanted to embrace somewhat within the narrative, especially with a character uh, like Ellie, who does become, um, you know, very well uh, respected in her own right. But also as a character in fiction, she has, um, you know, some complicated aspects to her, her trajectory as well. And early in the book, she refers to herself as having an exact replica of a social life, but not the thing itself. And in some of the things that you've written, you've talked about comparing novelists with forgers. You said that both trade in figments, illusions, the limits of veracity, specializing in deceiving the senses. Could you talk about why that theme of replicas, near virtual copies of an original are important to you in the context of this novel? Yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the core ideas in the novel is why we continue to be fascinated by fakes and forgeries. Um, and, and I think one of the things I arrived at, you know, I had a email exchange with a master forger throughout this novel, a, a guy named Ken Perini, who published a fantastic memoir some years ago called Caviar Emptor. And, you know, one of the stranger moments in the book was actually having him authenticate uh, the forgery that's you know, perpetrated by a fictional character in the novel. But what I learned from Perini and his book in particular is that forgeries have this narrative component, this component of storytelling. So one of the reasons we uh, are so, uh, I feel, I, I think we feel almost cheated out of an experience when we discover something is a fake is that we inject ourselves into this narrative. So what a forger does is sometimes they play with the narrative. So for example, Perini would use a technique where he would put blue chalk marks on the back of a painting to suggest a previous auction sale. Now, it's not that technically it requires that, but it adds to the storytelling element. I think that forgeries continue to plague us in the art world because when we're standing in front of a beautiful painting, we inject ourselves into the narrative. So we think about the life of the artist, the circumstances under which it was created. We also make a personal connection with that artwork. So to discover that it's actually a fake, I think for us feels often like uh, we've fallen in love with an imposter. And that idea of uh, ideas of forgery and authenticity, the idea of falling in love with an imposter is definitely a key, you know, a pivotal idea uh, in the novel. And is that idea that you've touched upon in your other novels at all? 
I think to some extent, I mean, I'm definitely interested in the idea of the double and authenticity. And also, I think the gaps and the silences in the historical record when it comes to to art forms. Uh, you know, my first novel, The Mercury Visions of Louis de Guerre, uh, is really interested in this notion of what it means to capture reality in this, uh, you know, this 19th century art form, the daguerreotype, but also simultaneously while its inventor, Louis de Guerre, is going mad from mercury poisoning. So I'm certainly interested in, in that kind of idea of what it means to have something in the world as art be authentic. And in fact, in the modern art world, authenticity is kind of such a key driver of price uh, that it's a very contentious topic. And compared with your other novels, was this harder or easier to write? <laughs> uh, I would say it, it was harder in the sense that it's the first time that I've bridged a contemporary narrative with a historical narrative. I think one of the challenges was how to write it in such a way that the reader, when they were in 17th century Amsterdam, felt like it was the same book as when they were in Sydney in the year 2000. Uh, so I think it was harder in, in trying to capture how to do that, how to try to even out the voice and then make it feel like it's all of a piece. And in terms of 1950s is obviously historical and I guess 2000 is as well. But in terms of 17th century Holland, could you talk a little bit about your approach to research? I mean, you've written that on some level you have to set the research aside and sort of dive in for the writing. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think what you don't want to do in historical fiction, and I've, you know, I think I've made this mistake in other pieces of fiction where, you know, there's a tendency to treat the reader like a tourist. And I don't think we want to treat them like a tourist. I think we want to treat them like, uh, you know, a good friend who's visiting for the weekend and we kind of take them around, but we carefully curate what we show them. And so I think the research is a means to an end. Uh, the end is definitely uh, storytelling. And I think out of the, you know, the treasure trove of research that you do, you have to pick the top, you know, the most evocative, most interesting 10% of the details and work those to really evoke, uh, you know, the kind of beating heart of that time period rather than uh, putting too much of it in. Uh, so I think that that's uh, you know, that is a kind of key challenge, I think, in historical fiction. It's something I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of, for sure. And you lived in Holland at, at some point, mm -hmm. but as you did the research for this book in particular, was there something that you found about the art world or about the Guild that really surprised you? For sure. I mean, really, the, the single most surprising element of this book was that I thought I knew before I started what the Dutch golden age of painting looked like. But actually, what I knew and what a lot of people know is Vermeer and Rembrandt and Van Goyen and maybe some Franz Hals. Given the sheer volume of artists that were working, there's all these missing layers. And I think, you know, Baroque Dutch women painters, painters like Sarah Leister, uh, are great examples of this. Uh, a painter who can be forgotten basically for 200 years and then rediscovered. So for me, it was coming to understand that what I thought that a golden age looked like and, and just how complex and how, uh, you know, varied it is, uh, those are two very different things. So that was a big eye-opener for me. And final question, uh, your background also includes a stint in architecture school and working for some dot-com companies. Mm -hmm. And to what extent did those experiences influence the way you write novels? <laughs> That's a great question. So I think, you know, part of my time in the dot-com world was working on technical documentation. And so one of the things that you do as a tech writer is you're always trying to get out of the way of the user. You're trying to make the writing as clean 
and as accessible as possible. And while I'm very interested in language and sculpting language, I also constantly think about, you know, do I need those four images or could I get away with one image and is, and, and trying to make that image as, you know, as bold and effective as possible. So that, that for me is, is I guess one key takeaway. Well, thank you, Dominic, for your time today and for uh, for your novel. Thank you for listening, and please join us soon for the next LitCast. The book, again, is The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos. We've been speaking with Dominic Smith, uh, and the book is being published by Sarah Crichton Books. 